and welcome to Facts Matter. This is a podcast by the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. I'm Malachi Barrett. I'm a reporter with Bridge Detroit, who covers City Hall, and I'm your guest host today for a conversation I think a lot of folks in Detroit are going to be interested in. This is about the proposed split rate tax, land value taxes, it's also being called for Detroit. This is a proposal that Mayor Mike Duggan is spearheading. He's looking for the Michigan legislature to pass some bills that would allow city council and eventually voters to approve a pretty significant reform to how property taxes work in Detroit. I'm here with James Tatum, the Detroit Bureau Director for the CRC, who recently published a pretty comprehensive report on the issue and some concerns and things to watch. You know, we've heard a lot about the potential benefits. James talked about some unintended consequences that we're going to dig into here. So thanks for being with me today. Yeah, thanks, Malachi. So let's set the stage here. What what exactly is a land value tax? What does that mean? Yeah, so I, I think it'd be useful to start off with the basic math behind property taxes as they currently are. Is And it becomes complicated because you have assessed value and taxable value. And I'll speak to that a little bit. But it's essentially the property value multiplied by the tax rate equals your property tax bill. And in summation, all the property tax bills that the city sends out equal the amount of revenue that it collects for property taxes. Inherent to that property tax base on which the tax rate is applied is a composite of land value and built structure value. That's what makes up your property value. So the land and then what's on top of the land. As the name implies for the split rate tax proposal, it aims to split the tax between land and the tax between the built structures. And essentially what it wants to do, what the, what the aim is, is to make it cheaper to build and more expensive uh, to have undeveloped land for land speculation. The way that it does that is a lower rate is applied to the built structures and a higher rate is applied to the land. We're talking about one piece of what goes into somebody's property tax bill. Uh, yes. The mayor has suggested reducing the city's operating tax uh, by 14 mills while creating a 118 mil tax on the value of land. And there's other things that go into your property tax bill. There's a, a number of jurisdictions. If you live yeah. in the city of Detroit, you're paying taxes for Wayne County, you're paying school and library taxes. All of that other stuff is going to be unaffected by this, correct? This is specifically for the city's operating levy. Yes. When the bill was initially introduced or when the idea was initially developed as it was expressed by the mayor at the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference, it would have affected the city's operating millage, so the, the basic levy that the city has to fund its basic operations, and the state education tax, which is six mills. That's been narrowed so that it only affects the city's operating millage and only up to a certain point. It doesn't eliminate the operating millage uh, in totality. And it's only the city of Detroit that'll be able to do this, not you know other jurisdictions, even if they wanted to. Um, so in a weird way, not only is it going to be kind of the split in a tax rate, but there's going to be two taxes in operation at the same time. So the city's operating millage doesn't completely disappear. It'll still be in effect. There'll just be this kind of added tax that'll create a lower liability for some in the end, and then a higher liability for others. What qualifies as a property improvement? So when we're talking about the structures on land, the taxes on that value being reduced, what, what qualifies there? What do we count as you know, an improvement? So improvements are like really anything that improves land. It's uh, 
homes, storefronts, apartments, factories, really any type of built structure on the land qualifies. And there are certain structures that'll be, I suppose you could say, punished a little bit. Now you could maybe think of as a parking lot as an improvement, but not really. I mean, it's not a high value use of the land. And so to some extent, this is meant to dissuade parking lots, junkyards, anything that kind of keeps the land flat and for a simple use. I've heard some pretty widespread acknowledgement that property taxes in Detroit, we kind of are operating with a broken system right now that essentially serves to overburden homeowners and maybe promote, maybe make it easier for land speculators to sit on properties that could be valuable and essentially kind of wait until they're in a position to sell that for a big payday. The mayor talks about land speculators who have bought up a vast number of parcels as kind of lottery tickets, hoping that at some point that becomes a lot more valuable. Yeah. Tell me more about just generally what's wrong with Detroit's tax system right now. Maybe this isn't the end-all be-all solution, but what is the struggle for people that are living in the city right now dealing with this tax system as it exists currently? So I'll provide some illustration on the macroeconomic level and the microeconomic level. And I'll start with the macroeconomic first, which is that for a lot of down on their luck cities, the issue is that even as they lose population and so the size of the populace they have to service diminishes, that they often find themselves in a position where they have to continually raise taxes. And they have to continually raise taxes for a couple of reasons. You think about Detroit. So Detroit is a city that was built for 2 million people. Its population peaked at 1.8 million in 1950. There's now, as of the most recent census estimate, the 2020 census, 639,111 people. So while it has far fewer people, it still has the same number of streets, the same number of water mains. It still has to provide retiree benefits to a workforce that was much bigger because there was a much bigger citizenry to provide services to. And you also have this issue of the people who have the most means leave oftentimes. And so not only do you have fewer people, but oftentimes the people who remain are even poorer than the populace you had behind. So they're having to raise taxes continually to try to maintain uh, the revenue that they had in more bountiful times so they can provide services. But those taxes are being levied on poor and poor people. And that's the case for the city of Detroit. If you look at the tax rates, the combined tax rate, Detroit citizens pay relative to those jurisdictions around them. They pay substantially more. And collectively, when you consider state taxes, county taxes, taxes paid or taxes levied by special districts in the city, Detroiters pay about 69 mils. Compare that to Grand Rapids, which hasn't had the same history as Detroit. People in Grand Rapids pay about 35 mils. You consider all the, the various taxing jurisdictions together. So that's a problem. Because not only is it a financial burden that falls upon people who tend to be the poorest, but also, you know, if you're a developer, if you have added this incentive for people to live and work in the city, there's that plan. That's the macroeconomic problem that Detroit has. On a microeconomic scale, and it feeds into the macroeconomic problem, if we think about that basic math that I talked about earlier, which is property value multiplied by the tax rate equals your tax bill. If you make an improvement to your property, and you've increased the value of your property, you have, by a function of that math, increased your property tax bill. 
So the mayor often has this line that the current tax system punishes development and rewards blight. And to some extent, he has a point. And what this proposal aims to do is kind of switch that around. Help me understand what the actual benefit will be for homeowners, because that's a very key piece of this. The mayor said that after this gets implemented, people won't have to apply. They'll get an automatic savings on their properties. And how significant is that savings going to be? How does that level the playing field compared to specifically the suburban neighbors that Detroit has? The mayor has pointed toward Detroit really being an outlier in the region as well as, as the state. How much does this kind of bring us in line with other communities? The estimate from the mayor's office is that 97% of property owners in the city of Detroit will receive a property tax cut of some form or another. Homeowners, residential homeowners in particular, will receive about a 17% cut. I haven't seen the data to support that. I don't mean to imply that it's incorrect, but we simply haven't seen the data. I can provide a little basic math for people, which is that The median home value in Detroit, owner-occupied home value, is about $57,000. And so half of that value, which is what would be taxable under current law, is about $28,000, $29,000, thereabouts. So under the current structure, when you consider the 69 mills, so the about 29 mills levied by the city combined with all the other mills, that homeowner is paying about $2,000 a year in, in property tax. Under this split rate tax proposal, based on the data that we have, they pay about 1800 1700 $1,800. So it'd be about a 10% cut in the property tax, maybe $200. And that's not an insubstantial sum, particularly for families that tend to be much poorer. Just very briefly, I don't call it a tragedy because that's a bit melodramatic, but home ownership is on a Home value to home uh, to income ratio, home ownership is much uh, more uh, affordable in the city of Detroit. So a home's value is generally about 1.7 years worth of household income in Detroit. It's about 2.6, 2.7 at the county, state, and national level. So home ownership is more affordable, but it's the taxes that tend to really harm people. There's Detroit had a foreclosure crisis, and that's part of the reason why. I, that's that situation. So let's expand a little bit on on what happened in the recent past here. Coming out of the Great Recession, basically, my understanding is that the city did not account for the declines in property value. And so essentially, they were overvaluing homes over a, a period of maybe even close to a decade. And that led to residents being overtaxed. The Detroit News has pegged that figure around $600 million collectively, which led to a wave of tax foreclosures and people losing their homes. What has been done since then to get assessments kind of back under control in Detroit? Do you have a sense of whether the city is in a better position to accurately measure the value of of homes as they embark on this new system? So the narrative of the history that you provide is exactly correct. And I'll just reiterate in brief, which is that if you look at, let's say, the, the Case-Shiller Home Price Index for metropolitan Detroit, and this is really of all the U.S., home values increase over time. That tends to be what happens, with the rare exception of what happened in the Great Recession when there was a, a bust in the housing market and those values declined. Detroit did not 
reappraise those properties to reflect the worsened economic conditions. And so because the property base was elevated, the city taxpayers paid more than they needed to. To correct that, in 2017, the city completed a citywide reassessment. Most people, I want to say, or at least half of residents or half of property owners, saw, I think, about a 10% reduction in their tax liability. So if we compare then to now, the citywide reassessment in the in the 2017 lowered the property tax base for a lot of people, and that lowered their tax bill. Now what the city aims to do is to lower the tax rate itself and lower their tax bill by that means. So are they prepared to take this on? It's hard to know. There have been improvements in the city's assessment office. There's still, if you listen to, I think, Alvin Horn, who is the deputy chief financial officer for assessing, he says they're understaffed and underfunded. It's hard to know how intensive this will be to appraise these properties properly. He's been pretty clear, Alvin Horn, that his office needs more support. It needs basically a budget increase to hire more staff and implement some software improvements. And that would put them in a bigger, a better position to implement this. The mayor's open to that. So we'll see what happens there. But I think it kind of speaks to a general anxiety that I've been hearing among residents that they don't necessarily trust the numbers that are coming out of the assessor's office. And the mayor's been pretty clear that they've implemented reforms. They've across the board slashed assessments, I think, as you were pointing to there. And there's not really a widespread problem with over-assessments. Now, there's other groups. Coalition for Property Tax Justice for One has put together some research suggesting that the lowest-valued homes in Detroit are still being overtaxed. Do you have any perspective on where that stands today, if that's uh, still an ongoing problem? I haven't seen that research. The problem is that really to combat a a property tax assessment, it isn't done for the most part on a systematic basis. You, the taxpayer, are left to challenge your property tax assessment in a tribunal. And most people don't have the resources to do that, oftentimes because it requires legal counsel. So after the citywide reassessment that occurred in 2017, you would hope that all the assessments have been corrected, but it's hard to know because there's not as much systematic research on the topic post that reassessment. So let's let's zoom out a little bit. We talked a little bit about the savings that homeowners can expect. The city has said on average around $184 or what uh, people can expect to have slashed off their bills. It, it varies. There's a couple of factors that go into that. The city released a tool where people can input their address and it kind of spits back out what they're paying in taxes now and what their savings will be. And I've seen that range between you know, twenty to fifty dollars off the bill to several hundreds of dollars, even up to you know a thousand dollars or more. Can you give us a better sense of what kind of determines how big the cut will be for homeowners? It in part depends on the location. Are they near the central business district where land values will be higher? So there isn't a set tax rate yet because the process is the state legislature has to approve the city's ability to do this. The city council has to approve a referendum. Voters have to approve that referendum. The proposal from that I've seen, the latest one that's been reviewed by the city's, I think, legislative policy division is that there's the six mills from the city's normal tax levy. And then in the split rate tax, it's 118 mills on land specifically. And so when you really think about it, it's six mills on built structures. 124 mills on land. 
because you have the six mills that's applied normally to property value, which is a composite of land and built structure value. And then those 118 mills, which are levied strictly on the land value. Research put out by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy noted that for a lot of Detroit properties, you know, if you look at them in totality, 96% or so of the total property value is built structure value. The other 4% is the land value. So for most people, it is likely that they will see a property tax cut, but the size of it likely depends on their, how close they are, how, how much proximity they have to really desirable pieces of land, such as downtown, midtown, and the like. So the further you're out from those pockets of development that have happened in the city, the greater your tax bill is likely to be because the lower value your land is likely to be. This leads to kind of the, the big elephant in the room that we haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> Some of our listeners are probably really wondering about how this affects downtown and the central business district and wealthier neighborhoods in proximity to that Lake Brush Park, where there's been a large amount of development. There are condos that are on sale for million dollars or more over there. And who really stands to benefit the most from this? So what's the impact on those wealthier landowners, those larger developers that have some really lucrative sites in downtown Detroit? So their tax bill would fall. The amount of decline is hard to discern because the majority of the value for, let's say, some of the buildings in District Detroit, for example, that some of those already see tax abatement, but some of the major developments is that the built structure is most of the value. And so there would be a, a cut on that end. At the same time, to the extent they're in a desirable area, that will probably mitigate some of the reduction because their land will be very valuable in a central business district and the like. So will they benefit heavily? Likely so, but that does not in and of itself, I think, make the, pro the policy unworkable or, or, you know, the improper route, you know, that's to some extent for the Detroiters to decide is the, the tax cut when considered in totality worth it, even if maybe outsized benefits are conferred to people who have valuable buildings. Critics of this proposal have specifically pointed to the savings that wealthier landowners will receive as a flaw of this proposal. There's a characterization that it's a handout basically to owners of parking lots and basically hand out to developers and building owners in the downtown. Is that a fair characterization? Those people would likely see an outsized benefit. I think that is a fair characterization. A part of the problem is also that the city already hands out quite a bit of benefit to developers. So if you think about how often tax abatements, which is a somewhat artificial reduction in tax liability that can be conferred by the jurisdiction in question, the city already does that. So the, the issue today is the city has a really inefficient and burdensome and to some extent messy tax system. And the reason it's messy is that why it levies this heavy burden on people it also, in a patchwork style, allows people to opt out. If you think of the neighborhood enterprise zones, renaissance zones, it has all these ways in which it, it has alleviated the burden for some people, but not all. 
Yeah, the mayor's talked about NEZs, neighborhood enterprise zones, as being kind of an unfair system that's yes. served to really just benefit the wealthiest neighborhoods. And if you're lucky enough to live in those areas, you get a nice tax break. But if you're not, you're kind of SOL. And under this proposal, NEZs would effectively be phased out. You could keep your uh, your tax credit until it expires, um, but that at that point, it, no more renewals would be granted, and essentially NEZs would kind of end uh, under this proposal. How significant of a shift is that? It seems like NEZs were the primary way that people were incentivized to move into neighborhoods and in, in selected areas that were um, primed for more residential growth. Is that is that going to change in this proposal? What really happens for people that kind of pinned their future on being in an NEZ? So as I understand the proposal, how it stands now, there is to some extent an attempt to hold people harmless with credits for at least some period of time. After that point, it's somewhat uncertain how it will affect things. Even if their properties increase in value, there won't be as much of an effect on the tax bill because it'll be the built structure that increase in value likely more so than the land. Or rather, you could say the built structure will increase in value at a greater rate, both in terms of the speed of it and then also the, the magnitude of it than relative to land. And for that reason, they'll still face a relatively lower tax bill than they would have had the NEZ not existed under the current tax system. We've talked about the savings a lot. I want to shift in now and discuss the kind of punishment, the increase in taxes that's going to be placed on owners of, of vacant land and these property speculators. What's your take on how powerful that punishment will be? Is it going to create an increase in costs to the level that it makes more sense to develop as the mayor has suggested? Is it actually going to incentivize productive use of these sites that have long sat stagnant to the frustration of the community? Because property values are so low in the city of Detroit, it's attracted a lot of speculation. Now, speculative activity has increased really across the U.S. The Washington Post had a really excellent article about the number of properties purchased per zip code in major metropolitan areas by uh, cash offers and uh, outside investors. And just an example, I think in 2021, 19% of residential home purchases in metropolitan Detroit were made by investors. And if you look at the 48213 area code specifically, 82% of the purchases were made by investors. And there is a sense that not that there's a sense for two reasons that this land speculation is harmful to the city. One, when there is a major development project, that land speculator has essentially has a lottery ticket that they just won. Because if that land is needed, all the parcels need to be pulled together for a coherent project, well, now they have to pay up to the land speculator who may have purchased the property for a very small amount. Then there's also the period in the interim, when, you know, when the investor cashes in and cashes out, that maybe they're not doing anything to incentivize development. And in the interim, the property is kind of left to deteriorate and the city has to pick up the cost of that deterioration. So this is intended to add cost to that specifically for vacant land, because remember, it's land itself under, you know, under use, your tax at taken together 124 mills, normal six mills and 118 of the specific land tax mills. And by the way, I, I say mill, a mill is $1 tax 
for every $1,000 of property value or taxable value. And so it's meant to make that more expensive and cost prohibitive. And it's meant to incentivize really one of three outcomes, which is that they pay more in taxes. And so the city recoups the costs that are needed to ameliorate crime or environmental hazards because the properties may be left to deteriorate. Sell the land to somebody who will build on it or build on the land themselves. In as the city seeks to punish that activity, I don't want to overstate the concern, but there is some worry about whether this will increase maybe even in a small part land abandonment. That if I purchase this property for a low price merely as a lottery ticket under the phenomena that I just stated earlier, that if costs are added to this, what is supposed to be a passive investment, that I throw my hands up and I, I leave the property to further deteriorate and maybe fall into tax foreclosure. I think we're talking about a couple of the different groups of uh, of people when it comes to land speculation and landowners of, of the vacant yes. sites, which makes it a little tricky to talk about. I mean, there's the kind of bad faith actors that the mayor's talked about, the people that are holding on to the lottery tickets. And then there's folks that kind of pushed back on this and said, the reason I haven't developed on the site is because it's expensive to develop in Detroit. And this isn't going to make that any easier for me. It's going to make it, it's going to increase my costs, basically. Is that a valid concern from folks that maybe this problem of speculation is being overblown and it's really going to hurt folks that are trying to scrounge together the financing to do stuff and increasing their bill is going to hold that back? So if if we look I don't want to say the pandemic ended because in some sense it hasn't, but when we've started to come up that the worst parts of it, you saw a substantial increase in the cost of steel, lumber, and other supplies needed to build a home. So that inflation has not completely abated. Then you have the fact that interest rates are on the rise, and so it's more expensive to borrow. So it is expensive to build. And it tends to be more expensive to build in urban areas relative to suburban or rural areas. In addition to that, credit access in Detroit is already restrained. Part of the reason that home ownership is so difficult is because the property values are so low, excuse me, that the properties, banks won't write a loan for them. And then who has $50,000 in cash to spend on a a home. Not many people, particularly when I think median household income Detroit is maybe in the 30,000 area. Yeah. Census Uh, said, put it around 32, 34,000, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So there is that issue. It's, it's hard to know. Part of the problem is it, there doesn't appear to be much demand for that type of land in Detroit. Now we don't have a perfect metric for demand for vacant land in particular in Detroit. And this wouldn't only be a penalty on vacant land. It's really kind of any type of underuse or underdevelopment. So parking lots, junkyards, they would be those would also be to some extent disfavored under this policy. But when we think about vacant land in particular, the largest holder of vacant land in the city is the city itself, at least via the Detroit Land Bank Authority, which kind of as its name implies was this entity created in 2008, really uh, reinvigorated and empowered in 2014 to collectivize all the ways that property comes into the city, which is tax abatement, nuisance abatement, just simple abandonment, and to then find productive uses for that property. Its holdings, its inventory of vacant land has been at, at 
or a little bit above 60,000 for the past seven years or so. It really hasn't changed. There doesn't be, appear to be much demand for that land. It wasn't intended that the land bank would be holding on to that much inventory for that long. So this is all an experiment to some extent. People always come up with the phrase, states are the laboratories of democracy. If that's the case, cities are the test tubes. And we have a couple examples from the Pennsylvania area, smaller cities. Some of them have abandoned it. And while they're both uh, cities or places in the upper Midwest, both have experienced some type of post-industrial decline, there are a few places that have the same uh, economics as Detroit, specifically its real estate market, which is quite different than a lot of other places. So it's uncertain, but from the metrics that we do have, there doesn't appear to be much demand for land in Detroit. I'm kind of surprised to hear that because the narrative has been for a long time that this is a place where you come buy up land for really cheap. You can buy cheap houses. Sure. They're maybe in a state of disrepair and you're going to have to invest some money to fix that back up. But for a while, I feel like the narrative around that has been, this is a good place to get stuff for cheap. And maybe that would signal some kind of demand there, but it sounds like that's not necessarily what you're seeing. Well, I put it into this context. The city is 142.9 square miles. And like I noted, it was built for 2 million people. There's a little under 700,000. There are certain areas of the city that are vibrant and which you can still pick up land for cheap. You can pick up properties for cheap and do well for yourself. But it's a vast space and there are areas that it's not the crime. It's not blight. It's just kind of the desolation. There aren't many people around. There aren't many businesses around. So for a lot of these plots of land, why would you buy them? They're kind of disconnected from the community. Here at Bridge Detroit, we're really focused on how this impacts residents and, and people yes. that have lived in the city for a long time. And that's why this argument around the land value tax making it easier to improve properties is, is so interesting to me because we have a huge home repair crisis in the city. There's a, there's a variety of factors for that. Essentially, there's a lot of homes that could use a new roof, could use windows, could use new porches, and people just don't necessarily have the capital to do that. And the mayor's office has said they're actually punished in, in some cases by raising the value of their property by making improvements to it. And so this land value tax would kind of reverse that situation. People would be more incentivized to actually invest in their properties. Tell me more about that. Is that likely so, to yeah create better better routes to improving these houses that are in a state of disrepair? Yeah. So so when I noted the math earlier, if you improve your property, you paint, aesthetic fixes, structural fixes, and you improve the property, you've increased the property's value and you've increased your property tax bill to some extent. What this would do would be to make the financial consequences of fixing the property less burdensome than they otherwise would be. And that is positive. That does matter. The financial burden foisted upon residents by the city's property tax burden is nonsensical when you compare it to nearby jurisdictions. And it's unfair. With that said, that doesn't fix the fundamental resource constraint faced by a lot of Detroit residents. And it can be summed up very briefly, which is that a lot of people are poor and a lot and a lot of people have little to no access to credit. There are no means 
for them to fix up a property, buy a property if they wanted to. And this policy doesn't fix that. That doesn't mean to say it's not worthwhile, but it, it doesn't address that problem. I mean, what Detroit, what, what needs to happen on a broad scale is either some broader access to credit is found somehow, some way, or property values increase to such where they, where they will be mortgageable or a bank will bother to write a loan for them. I think a lot of this kind of depends on behavior as well. We're making assumptions about what people, what choices people will make when these yes. uh, numbers change, right? So I think that has made it more difficult to track the long-term impact of that. How, how big of a question mark is that? That if we implement this, we're expecting some reductions uh, in costs for homeowners, some increases for for landowners, but five years down the road, do we have any kind of idea of how much this will change the landscape in the city? It's it's hard to know. The city has to address its property tax in, in some manner or another. It probably should have done it a little sooner rather than later, that it should have reduced its reliance on property tax, period, that it has other sources of revenue. But any type of policy that returns money to people's pockets that makes it less likely that they'll lose their home to unpaid taxes is worthwhile. It doesn't mean it'll be necessarily be this policy or that this is the best uh, course of action, but some action needs to be taken. And if this is the route the city so chooses, it's because we have few examples, almost none for major American cities to work from, it really is a vast unknown. The city's talked about this being revenue neutral too, which is, I think, an important thing we should talk about, the impact on the city's actual budget, um, especially as we're you know 10 years out from the bankruptcy. The, the millage rates were calculated to kind of make up for each other, so the reduction will be covered by the increase in taxes. But I think long-term, that's going to really depend on if we see increases in development. I mean, if we see demand for vacant land go up and, and these properties that are currently tax exempt because they're owned by the land bank begin the city can begin collecting property taxes from them so i don't know i mean how are you thinking about that the city has a caveat i believe in its analysis that it believes will be revenue neutral at least within the first year part of that depends on the actions that people take because and it it depends on how the value of land either increases or decreases relative to built structures, because if you have a situation where land values decrease in a substantial way, not that they necessarily would, okay, well then now more revenue has to be made about the tax on built structures. The city should probably reduce its reliance on property tax revenue. And lucky, or luckily for it, income tax revenue is on the rise, taxes on gambling and other uh, wagering activities is on the rise. Utility users taxes someone on the rise. All that needs to happen is that as its resource needs increase, that the totality of the revenue that it collects, irrespective of the exact source, increases along with it, that you have non-recurring expenditures supported by non-recurring revenues. It doesn't really matter what the mix is. Property tax is relatively more stable than the other tax sources because reassessment only happens so often. Property values tend to increase over time with the exception of the Great Recession aside. So we'll see what happens within the first few years. Like I said, we just don't have the data to know. At best, we have our estimates. 
Yeah, it's important to note that property taxes are not the main source of revenue for the city. The, the city collects more income from, or, or revenue, I suppose, from uh, income taxes and from the gambling taxes, as you said. Correct. Um, and, and long term, I mean, it seems like this has been something the city's been trying to get away from for a while. That was part of the creation of the income tax was to reduce the the reliance on property taxes when values are, are um, not as stable or, or declining. We're thinking about reforms, other alternatives that could that could kind of get at this problem. I think in concept, the land value tax is, is a, a simple kind of idea, but in implementation, as we've been talking about, there's a lot of unknowns and complexities to that. The city council has suggested maybe we should be looking at an amusement tax or some kind of arena surcharge on the big event venues, Little Caesars Arena and Comerica Park and the Fox Theater that bring sporting events and, and big music acts. We had Beyonce and Taylor Swift come to Detroit this year. Do you have a alternative proposals that might kind of get at this problem in a cleaner way or, or in a more equitable way? So I'll speak to two proposals that I've seen. One was put out by Councilwoman Angel Whitfield Calloway. And as I understand from her office, this proposal doesn't, you know, preempt the mayor's proposal and she's supportive of the land value tax proposal or split rate tax proposal. But her proposal was to reduce the city's mills by two mills for five years so that there would be a 10 mill reduction in total. So for the audience's benefit, the city's current basic operating millage rate is 19.9520 mills, if I remember correctly. And the two mill reduction will reduce it to the point where it's just 9.9520 mills. It is a much simpler proposal. It is also a costlier proposal. It doesn't mean that the costs are, and when I say costs, I don't mean expenses made by the city, foregone revenue, revenue that's lost that would have been collected otherwise had the tax rate remained the same. That there are those revenue losses to consider, but that they're not necessarily insurmountable. I don't know to what extent the city has explored that option. There's also a proposal that's been put up by people to eliminate the property tax. That may not be as feasible for the same reasons that it may be too costly to the city. There's also a proposal that the city could abate taxes totally on residential property, or at least owner-owned or, or occupied, or owner-occupied residential property. Some math would have to be done about how much revenue would be lost from those proposals. None of them are insurmountable. You know, just like the, the city has uh, petitioned the state legislature for the authority for a split-rate tax proposal, it could, for example, petition the state legislature for more authority on income tax. A lot of this definitely depends on how receptive the legislature is to implementing these changes. Detroit can't do this on their own. And I want to shift now and kind of talk about where we stand. We're recording this on November 10th. The legislature has wrapped up its business for the calendar year and did so without passing a package of bills that would allow Detroit to ask voters to implement this land value tax system. It hasn't even moved out of the House yet. It would need to then go into the Senate and there would be some negotiations there. We could expect even some changes to be made. But once Michigan senators have their hands on this, does that speak to anything we should be concerned about? I think there were a number of reasons why Democrats were unable to to muster up the votes for this. House Speaker Joe Tate obviously is from Detroit, is working with the mayor to get this through but wasn't able to build up enough support to kind of get this through the door uh, in the House this year. 
you know, to what extent does that signal problems that this is going to run into in the legislature? Listen, it was an ambitious timeline. I think the timeline, as I heard articulated by the mayor, was that this would be voted on by the legislature, that I think by February, if not earlier, city council would vote on it so that it could be on a referendum during the presidential primary. And then that tax change could filter in for next year's tax bills. What I suspect happened is there was just more education that needed to be done on the mayor and the city's part than was anticipated because there just aren't many examples. Nobody does this in the state of Michigan. Hardly any cities do this in the U.S. Um, I don't even know if there's that many cities that do this internationally. So it, it could come to fruition, but but who knows? And then there's the added complication that while we were quite a few years ahead, or at least a year or two ahead, there's a mayoral race in 2025 to be considered. Uh, and there's a question of whether Mr. Duggan will try to run for another term or whether others will uh, join him in that race and whether they'll be competitive. There's complexity and there's added politics, all of which have made this difficult almost with any issue. But I suspect that the main issue was people are too unfamiliar with this idea and uncertain about its implementation. Well, at least people will have more time now at this point. I don't think we have a set timeline for when it will be brought back, but House Speaker Joe Tate has said that this is on this is high on his list of priorities and will come back sometime next year, so we're going to have to keep an eye on that. What have we not talked about that it's you know important to consider aspects of this kind of standout that you just want to kind of leave people with as we wrap up here? I think we've captured most of the elements of it. I would encourage people to use the property tax bill calculator that the city has put up on its website to see how the policy would affect them. But even if this specific proposal doesn't make it out of the state legislature, reform is needed. And I say reform, but really the word is reduction in the tax liability that's put upon some of the poorest residents in the state. And it's important that this this is on the top of people's minds. Great. Well, James, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for lending your expertise. And I, I hope uh, listeners had a chance to get more familiar with some of the, the nuances of this proposal. As you said, there's there's more to dig into here. I'm going to be continuing to cover this for Bridge Detroit. We've done a couple of explainers of the current proposal. We're going to be watching if that changes, tracking the reaction from city council members and voters, because ultimately this is going to rely on Detroiters themselves choosing to take this up or not. But I think we've kind of handled it for today. So yep. I appreciate your time and thanks everybody for listening. The Citizens Research Council of Michigan has been providing lawmakers, academics, and the media, and all Michiganders, really, with factual, unbiased, independent information on significant issues concerning state and local government, organization, and finance for 107 years. Our research is available to you. Go online at crcmich.org and on Twitter at crcmich. Download our research, check out our numerous blogs and listen to our podcasts. And while you're there, please consider supporting our research with a donation. We rely on charitable donations for our work. This has been a Facts Matter podcast, a presentation of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan.